TGIM, Team RE. This is episode 319. When I was stressed out at work, when I was stressed out about a social situation, whatever it was, you know, alcohol could fix that temporarily until it didn't. And now I'm accepting that feelings and phases and moods come and go and we're okay. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler, and thank you so much for joining us. On today's show, we've got Corey. Corey took her last drink on March 21st, 2019. She is from Texas, and she is 32 years old. Before I get going with the interview, I want to let you know that we are in need of your help. You know, we get a lot of emails of people wanting to share their story here on the podcast or just talk to us about their journey. And on our Instagram page, which is at Recovery Elevator, we are really trying to make it all about a community, make it all about your stories as well. So I have one way in which you can share a part of your story with us and with the world. We are requesting for videos from you, our listeners, where you share your you may need to ditch the booze if line with us. These can be funny videos, they can be serious, but most importantly, we want them to feel authentic to yourself and to your journey. If you are interested in submitting one of these to us, make sure that you keep your video to 60 seconds or less. Hold the phone sideways so that it's a horizontal view. Make sure you keep it steady and send us your video. You can send us your video at info at recoveryelevator.com. You can also include your Instagram handles so that we can tag you in the video. And voila, it's a way that we can collaborate. It's a way that we can contribute to the community. And we just want to see more of you on our page. We want to see more of what makes this movement possible. And we wouldn't be here without you. So if you're interested, send us your video. I can't wait to see some of your faces on our page. And thank you so much. Once again, it's at Recovery Elevator on Instagram. Alrighty, and let's work on finding your better you. A couple of weeks ago, I was hiking with some sober friends And one of them mentioned something that caught my attention. She said that recently she had rediscovered music. She mentioned how she'd been listening to a lot of quit lit books and a lot of podcasts on repeat for the last months. You know, she had put music on the back burner for a bit as she was really getting this whole sobriety thing. She said music sounded amazing to her lately and that she really wanted to make it a point to listen to more music again versus just pressing play on the next recovery related thing on her cue. And this got me thinking, you know, and and the truth of the matter is that we are so much more than our drinking problem. We are so much more than our recovery. For many of us, this path has actually given us our life back. And I even dare to say that for many of us, what we currently have would disappear if we returned to drinking. Maybe not immediately, but progressively. But we aren't just this person that drank too much. We aren't just someone trying to make it through the day sober, figuring out how to turn down the next drink we get offered and adding new tools to our recovery toolbox on the daily. We're also friends and brothers and spouses and professionals and artists and daughters and lovers and grandparents. We are multifaceted. 
We are one in I don't know how many millions and there is no one in the world like us. There is no one in the world like you. How easy it is to feel submerged in this recovery world though. To feel like every day we have to go to this full immersion school of sobriety in order to stay sober. And that's how I learned English, by the way. I went to a full immersion English school in Mexico. All of my classes were taught in English since I was in kindergarten. So eventually, it stuck. I don't know when I crossed the bridge to thinking and even dreaming in English. But one day it just happened. Just like what my friend Maggie shared on the hike. You know, one day she discovered that she missed music and she rediscovered the joy that she felt listening to music again. And in sobriety, we don't know when it's going to get better, but it does. We don't know when our life that seems like an attempt at getting sober becomes simply just our life. And sobriety ends up being just a piece of it. We learn and relearn who we are, what we enjoy, what we want to get better at, whether that's playing the guitar or knowing how to make a better presentation for your next team meeting. Because due to this sliver of your persona, this recovery you, you are able to see everything so much more clearly now. And being sober is just a piece of the cake that you are. And there's so much more to go around. Red velvet slices filled with opportunities. Of course, the maintenance period of our journey is important. I've heard many people share what works for them and how they must incorporate some tools every single day to secure their recovery and to make sure that that tiny little voice in the back of their minds that is wondering if they could drink normally again is appeased. Everyone has a different timeline, but the neat thing is that if we stay the course, we all eventually get to graduate from this full immersion school of sobriety. We still check in regularly, but we don't have to spend our entire day there. I heard so much joy in Maggie's voice when she told me how good music sounded to her lately. It made me think of my life and the things I notice myself enjoying so much more now. Dancing, blasting music in the car while the kids are in the back seat, peeking into the room right before I go to sleep to see their sleeping faces, running and seeing my speed get faster on the treadmill, FaceTiming my mom after a long day of work to see how she is doing, eating dinner with my husband and being fully present. I don't take these things for granted. Maybe because my 20s are such a blur. Between drinking too much and binging and purging, I lost many memories that I can only recall when I look at old pictures I took. How neat that in sobriety, we can have our cake and eat it too. All right, eso es todo. And that's my weekly dose of shares on this episode. And before we hear from Corey, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With the supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project. 
where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Corey, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, Odette. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink, Corey? The last time I had a drink was March 21st, 2019. So it's been about one year and nine months-ish so far. Congrats. And you made it all of 2020 without drinking, which I think that should count as double or more, much more than one year. <laughs> I did. Yeah. They, you know, I'm not going to lie. 2020 at times was hard and there, there were a few temptations for sure. Of course. But... And what a testament to the fact and the belief that we can do this no matter how many things are happening at the same time as it all happened last year. So I'm just really glad that you made it. Thanks. I am too. <laughs> I am too. And Corey, can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Sure. So I grew up in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm 32 years old, about to be 33. I am mostly spent my life in Austin, Texas, but was born abroad over in Japan, moved around a lot as a kid and, and finally moved here when I was about 10 years old. So I call it home. I'm not married yet, but I have a fiance and we just bought a house this year. So we moved kind of outside of Austin, out in the country a little bit. So no kids yet, but but hopefully in the near future. And then as far as fun, honestly, you know, with quarantine, I feel like I, I used to be a little bit of a social butterfly, you know, before quarantine, um, I would attend a lot of, a lot of meetings, have dinner with, you know, friends and, and family. Now I do a lot of staying at home. <laughs> However, I, I still like to, to get out and um, go for walks. I love to read. Um, I like to run. I haven't been active with that recently, but definitely like to do it. I like to draw. So anything artsy or aesthetic, I, I'm really drawn to that too. Congrats so. on the new house. Thank you. Thank that's, you. That's exciting. Um, I've been wanting to go back to Austin uh, probably once COVID and the vaccine and all of this stuff is the dust is settled. I, I really want to try a lot of restaurants over there. I've heard great things. Oh my gosh, they're so good. Uh, the food is so good here. I love it. Yeah. Now, now I know who to call when I make my <laughs> way over there. <laughs> For sure. And then, Corey, you also mentioned you lived in Japan. How was that? How old were you? I'm curious because I loved visiting Japan. Did you enjoy your stay over there? Oh, um, so I was born over there. I don't really remember too much of Japan. Wow. We then moved over to Singapore when I was about three, and then finally moved back to the States when I was about five or six. So I have, you know, very vague memories of living in Asia. But I wouldn't be able to tell you what I thought of Japan, because yeah. I really, I, I was too young. Um, but I would love to go back. And, and I'm jealous that you've been as an adult, because it's, it's definitely on my list. Yeah, I felt like I went to the future. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> and the food, of course, was delicious. So hopefully yeah. you'll make your way back over there. Well, thanks, oh, Corey. Sure. And can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving you? And just tell me your story. Yeah, so 
I, I don't know when I had my first sip of alcohol. I grew up in a house, my mom and my dad, and they both drank, but it, it wasn't anything crazy. Um, I remember having, you know, a sip or two of my mom's wine, but I thought it was disgusting. And then in high school, I didn't drink at all. I, I was part of a few programs that you had to sign contracts that you wouldn't drink and party. And I, I have to follow the rules. <laughs> mm. So that's what I did. And I, I, I lived by those and I, I didn't really have um, my first drink until college. And I remember at 18 when I, the first drink that I had, I remember that, that feeling drunk and a little bit dizzy and all self-control was, was gone. And I was kind of shy, so it felt really good. And I remember it not wanting to stop. And I don't even remember exactly what we were drinking, but I remember taking more of it so that feeling wouldn't stop. And that, that happened very rarely in college, though. It was, it was, you know, a few times here, a few times there. And I, it felt fairly normal because that's kind of what everybody else was doing. Mm-hmm. Toward my, my latter um, years in college, I started going out with friends and um, I worked in the restaurant industry. So that, that really, I think, um, it kind of breeds alcohol in the nightlife. So I would say it was my latter part of college that I started going out and really making it a regular basis. Um, but at that time, again, it still felt normal. And, and when I hear other people say this, I, I hear that same thing, that it still felt normal until it didn't. I would say my early 20s, uh, when I graduated college, it was was that 2010 when I graduated college. So we had just come out of the, the recession or we're in the middle of it. And I graduated with a liberal arts degree. So I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I moved over to Spain to become an au pair uh, for about six months. And I drank a lot there. I stayed out all night and I didn't want the party to end. And I think that was the first time that I actually thought I might have a problem. Um, I remember nannying and taking care of them. So hungover, um, trying not to, to throw up in the car the next day as we were driving them and just... I, I think that's kind of when it really hit me that mm-hmm. it's not normal, but still because I was 22, 23 and everybody was staying out late, it, it just, it didn't seem that bad. And so when I came back to the United States, I, this was about this, so this would have been about 2011. I continued to, to work in the restaurant industry and then the nightlife just continued and I, I would go periods without drinking. It wasn't all the time, but when I did, I, it, it was always getting drunk and then getting sick the next day and being hungover and, and making stupid decisions and saying stupid things and always feeling that that sense of dread. So, so. At, at this point, if you kind of started to ask yourself those questions when you were in Spain of wondering if uh-huh. it was a problem or not, when you came back and got back into the restaurant industry, what types of thoughts were you having? Were you wanting for it to stop? Did this almost like self-investigation continue where you just were wondering if this was normal or did it just continue to feel justified? Because I'm assuming if you were in the restaurant industry, I worked in the restaurant industry for years as well. It is truly what everyone is doing. Here's the crazy thing. It, I could see, I went, this is not who I want to be. This is not the person that I was in high school or even in college. And I knew I was so different from that person, but everyone around me was doing it. Everyone was drinking as much as I was, if not more, staying out later. And so it felt so justified. 
So despite the fact it wasn't myself and who I wanted to be and who I saw myself as, I judged myself compared to other people. And it felt normal in that sense, if that kind of makes any sense. Yeah, that's just powerful that that statement, you know, I'm going to repeat it, I wrote it down here on my notes. This is not who I want to be. So I mean, you and I are almost the same age. At at that point, you already knew in your early 20s, like, this isn't the best version of myself. And um, I'm assuming that that stuck, even if you were doing what other people were doing, and it, it you kept justifying it to yourself. How did that other narrative grow of like, this just doesn't feel right? What happened after that? Uh, that's a great question. And it it didn't feel right moving forward. And it began to feel more not right the more I drank and the older I got. When I got out of the restaurant industry um, and started working, it wasn't as common <laughs> to go out and stay out till till 1 a.m. in the morning or drink and be hungover the next day. So when I was still doing that at, at 25, 26 um, and looking around at some of my friends and some of my colleagues who didn't do that, I started to question, oh, wait, this isn't who I really want to be. And this really isn't the person that I want to be. So it's not only I started comparing myself to, to other people a little bit, but the, the drinking really, really just kind of continued. It was 2019. I was working um, as kind of a virtual concierge um, in downtown Austin. And we had the option to work remote a lot. This is before COVID. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling in um, a lot <laughs> saying that I was working from home when really I was, I was just so hungover. And here I was at 30, almost 31 years old, going out the same amount as I was when I was 22 in really not the person that I wanted to be. And that, that last night that I, I, I just got so drunk, I had to call out from work, didn't show up to these Zoom meetings that we had. It just, it, it, it really struck a chord with me. And that, that emotional rock bottom, despite the fact, like a lot of people say from the outside looking in, everything looked fairly normal. That emotional rock bottom was something I never want to experience again. And I don't want anybody else to experience that too, either. Yeah, so. totally. It seems like you were high functioning the whole time. I mean, you did call off work, but that being able to still perform and and be a human and having people not even know what's going on just helps with the justification. So I totally hear what you're saying. And did you ever talk to anybody about your drinking throughout the years and like just vent or wondered or did anybody ever approach you? They did. You know, I had one person approach me about it and it was a a, a former boyfriend who had kind of was concerned and said, you know, you, you drink a lot. And I said, well, you smoke a lot of weed. <laughs> I got very <laughs> defensive. And you know, I, I, I did what I could to try and work on it, but really thought that he was being a little paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, he was probably justified. He was justified in, in, in saying that and being concerned. But I do remember talking. I was about 24 when I think I first actually verbalized it to my best friend. And she was somebody that I would go out with and you know, drink with. So it, it seemed weird telling her, but that was the first time I think I actually verbalized it to somebody. 
And then leading up to a few months before I stopped drinking, I I remember being really inquisitive to somebody that had started going to AA. Mm. Um, It wasn't something that I would do, but I was like, wait, why did you stop? What did you do? And I think that was just kind of my my uh, segue into going to to AA or going to a meeting was being so inquisitive about it. Yeah, and we often talk about responses when we tell people that we're not drinking and the type of response that we get. Uh, there's a, all these running jokes about you could tell someone that you're not drinking water for the rest of your life and they could care less. But the moment we tell people that we don't drink alcohol anymore, we get a full spectrum of different responses from people. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of the times we do find that people who are inquisitive are people who perhaps are already starting to question their own relationship with alcohol. So it sounds like something resonated with you from from that. So good for you for asking. And what about attempts? Like, did you ever attempt moderation? Or did you ever just think like, oh, it's probably not that bad. I can just probably cut back a little bit. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. About three weeks before I had my last drink, I decided that I was going to take a a few weeks off of drinking. Um, And I made it about two weeks. And then I started drinking a glass of wine at night. And it was just one glass. And then it was two. But it was still fine. And then it was that March 21st that I went out and I had three glasses of wine. And just continued. And I, I, I couldn't stop. And I remember being in the bathroom at at a bar and realizing that I did not want to stop drinking that night and how powerful that urge was. And that I kind of knew at that point, I feel like I was kind of saying I was powerless Mm -hmm. at that point that I, I didn't want to stop drinking. And that was the last time I ever drank. Was most of your drinking done out socially like at bars or at parties or once you got home did it just keep going no I was it was mostly social um I would come home from work sometimes and have three or four glasses of wine and get drunk um and I'm not very big so three or four glasses of wine I I was pretty drunk and or hung over the next day Mm -hmm. um so it I wouldn't do a whole lot of drinking by myself um but I would always be out and about with that being said, sometimes I would go sit at a bar by myself and pretend to do work, but I was really just there to to have wine and it was just kind of an excuse to drink. Have you gone down the path of asking yourself why? Like you you describe this scene in the bathroom where you are just, you can't stop. Do, have you kind of gone and tried to find the answer of like, why? Why is it so hard to stop and what am I trying to for lack of a better term, like run away from or cover or numb out on? It's hard to say exactly what it was. I think it's a, it's a whole variety of things, but it's ultimately it's that when you get down to the deep root of it, it's that feeling of, of not belonging mm. and num- trying to numb that a little bit. Always feeling a little bit awkward in a group of friends or a group of people, feeling a little bit different that people don't relate. and alcohol kind of helped <laughs> lubricate the situation and helped me feel a little bit better about myself. Like I did belong. It was a commonality. And then eventually kind of toward the latter part of my drinking, I, I really started feeling bad about myself where I was 
in relation to my friends, you know, not having a family, not having a house, not ha- whatever it might be, I felt less than, and that alcohol really just helped. <laughs> it did. Yeah, until it, it didn't. Exactly. I'm. I'm really glad you said before I, it didn't before I cut you off because <laughs> it's such a contradiction, right? We we go to it thinking that it's going to help us with connection. It's going to help us with self-esteem and confidence. And it ends up robbing us of those things. But for a moment, it does a good job at, at tricking us or deceiving us into actually thinking that we are getting it. But I think at least for me, the more I drank and the more I had those mornings where I felt just like this isn't my best self. And I kept saying that to myself, the the more injured my self-esteem got so it's like this weird trick where Mm -hmm. we kept falling for it and I bet I mean you have a good amount of time away from your last drink and I guarantee your self-esteem is completely different from those last few months night and day (laughs) I can't even believe it I was just browsing through some photos in my iPhone uh you know when they pop up with memories yeah and I was just looking at photos of myself and I, I didn't look as happy and I, I don't know how to describe it, but I looked at some more recent ones that have been taken within the last year and I just look a little bit healthier and a little bit happier, you know, skin's clearer. There's just, there's something and my, my self-confidence is, I don't even think about it as much. Sometimes if I'm in an awkward situation I become hyper aware of it. Like right now, I'm a little bit nervous. (laughs) But in day to day conversation where it would be very hard for me to talk to somebody or be a part of a conversation or look somebody in the eye while I'm speaking. um, Now, I don't even think about it. It it just becomes natural. And there's a little bit of a a silent self-confidence that I'm, I'm really thankful for. And I don't have to wear makeup every day to to feel pretty. And I, I don't have to, you know, prove myself to anybody. And there's there's something really cool about that. And I feel with my work in sobriety, I've been able to to accomplish that. I love this. I love the, where the conversation is taking us because it's not just confidence, but it's also acceptance. Like I think, yes, alcohol is sold to us as a connector. And a lot of the times it's like, oh, the moment you walk into a party, have a cocktail to kind of put your guard down and, and create this social lubrication as we're talking about. But I've been talking about and thinking about how certain situations just need to be awkward, like that initial phase, (laughs) I have young kids, and it's like, well, the first day of school, or when you want to approach a new kid at the playground, and it's kind of weird, because you don't know how they're going to respond. So it's like, it's weird how when we're grown ups, we think that automatically, we just have to be our best selves and ready to talk and ready to engage. And it's almost like that's not even reality. You know, there, there is this level of discomfort to a lot of environments that we present ourselves to like first day at work or first date I don't know all of these situations and it's normal for it to feel awkward but when we're in that awkward situation we're like well I don't feel like I fit in like you said or there must be something wrong with me and it's just like well this is just how it's supposed to be at the beginning right it's like we're we're human 
And it takes time <laughs> sometimes to just be ourselves or get talkative or sometimes we actually don't want to talk to certain people. And I don't know, it took me a while to understand that, you know, some situations in life are just awkward, uncomfortable, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I 100% agree. And accepting that I'm not going to be the happiest person all the time. I'm not going to be, you know, the center of attention and starting the conversation all the time. That's okay. I know a lot of times when I'm I actually kind of like the masks for that reason. I don't feel like I have to smile and engage with a <laughs> bunch of people. But I, I know I've been at, at the grocery store and I just haven't been as friendly as I think I should. I, you know, working in hospitality, I think I should smile at everybody. And and then I have to go back and I go, that's okay. I'm kind of in a bad mood yeah. and that's okay. It may come across as awkward, but that's, it's okay. <laughs> so it's, um, it's been a lot of accepting that and realizing that moods change and, to be okay with the mood I'm in, don't, you know, sit in it forever. But I think when, when I was stressed out at work, when I was stressed out about a social situation, whatever it was, you know, alcohol could fix that temporarily until it didn't. And now I'm accepting that feelings and phases and moods come and go and we're okay. (laughs) Yeah. And the neat thing about that, I think there's like another side of the coin is where acceptance softens you because now if you have that understanding about yourself where you are understanding that moods fluctuate and you're not always in a good mood and you can't have that expectation of of yourself then then you don't turn around and have that expectation of other people like I took me a while to realize that high expectations on yourself are always resulting in also expecting a lot from other people and I think that when we learn acceptance it just softens our judgment because I think it's impossible to be judgment free but I don't know it makes us better people it 100% does and that's something I work on on the daily is not trying to expect things from people that I don't even vocalize (laughs) (laughs) you know if if somebody's in a bad mood or a client that I speak to is a little bit short I'm I'm definitely more accepting of it granted you know feelings still get hurt but I, I can kind of take a step back and see a wider eye view of of what's really going on. Tell me, Corey, after that decision, after that night and and you deciding to not drink anymore, what was life after that? What did you do to help you stay on this path? Uh, How was that short, like initial phases of your journey? Yeah. So that morning when I woke up on the 22nd of March, I decided I wasn't going to drink anymore. And I had decided that before, but I, there was just something that really made it different. I, I I just knew it it was black and white. I had, I had to stop. So I, I listened to a few podcasts just because I was curious about sobriety. I read a few blogs and I went to Instagram, believe it or not, and just started following a lot of sober people. I followed um, one person in particular listened to it. It wasn't, it wasn't a very well-known podcast. It, it wasn't this one, which I, I still listen to recovery elevator quite a bit, but he mentioned that if you're ever, if you're struggling, just go check out an AA meeting. And I, I went, eh, I don't know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I felt like it was nudging me. And so I, I, I found one that was less than a mile from my house and I could walk to, and it was all women. It was exactly what I needed. I, I felt like had I driven, I would have parked and then walked away or driven away without going in. 
And as soon as I, I went in, I, I was crying, but I, it was like the perfect place to be. Everyone was so welcoming. The first time I heard people be honest, I was just, I feel like things had been glossed over in my life, emotions. It just, it felt so fake and walking in there felt so real. And at that point, I just kept on going to regular meetings, being active in the, you know, in that AA community at first, again, uh, listening to a ton of podcasts, reaching out on Instagram to those sober folk (laughs) who I began to follow. And then about two weeks in, I started going to this place in Austin called Sands Bar, which is an alcohol-free bar. Yes. I met a lot of- (laughs) Chris Marshall. (laughs) Yeah. I walked up to the bar. And so if, for those like for those that don't know in Austin on the east side it's this little itty bitty building and he started this alcohol free bar and it just kind of was a grassroots movement i heard about it on a podcast looked it up and realized it was in Austin and i said well that's another sign so about 2 weeks into not drinking i went i was scared and i walked up to the bar to get my mocktail and he said you know you're new i'm chris how long have you been sober? I said, two weeks. He goes, two weeks and you're here? I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, you have a strong community behind you. Added me on Instagram, introduced me to people. And it was so welcoming. It, it was really cool. And so I, I kept up with the community, the sober community in Austin quite a bit until COVID hit. Really, everything's been mostly virtual. I've been to a few meetings, but I, I really have just kind of dropped off. What I What I do now is either reading or listening to podcasts, sometimes texting with friends. Luckily, I have, you know, a great support group. So, but that that, that was kind of the the days leading or after sobriety. I went kind of beyond there. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's so awesome that you went to Sands Bar. I I haven't, (laughs) I haven't been, but I know of it thanks to my good friend, Trisha, who lives in Dallas. So she's in Texas as well. And she partnered with Chris to do Sober by Southwest. Oh, God, it feels like forever ago since COVID hit. But Chris is amazing. I've heard him on different. Yeah, I've heard him on different interviews. And that is so neat that he's there locally and that you've gotten to know him. And how awesome of you that you got out of your comfort zone and just went knowing that the bar was there and good for you. Oh, scary. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. But you did it anyway. Yeah, it was a lot less scary than walking into that AA meeting, I tell you that. (laughs) I know, AA meetings can be intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. So, Corey, tell me, what do you do when you get a craving? I don't know if you get them as often now, but what are some tools that have worked for you? When I get a craving, I don't get them as often now, but doesn't mean that they don't exist. And every once in a while, it will pop up. I kind of have to check myself and I, I take a step back. I'm usually hungry when I get cravings, because it's right after work. Um, I'm usually maybe slightly stressed from work or, you know, just was busy at work. And so I'll usually drink some water and eat something or have a snack um, or have something sugary. And that, that typically helps um, for the physical part of it. Mm -hmm. For any type of mental part, um, sometimes it's a matter of just literally, you know, maybe shutting my electronics off. I like to go out for walks. I love to be outdoors. So whether it's just being outside with my dog, going on a walk, uh, listening to music, or I, I have texted friends at the same time just saying, hey, I have a craving or I vocalized it. I, I've actually told my fiance, he, he drinks normally. And, you know, I've told him, I said, hey, I'm having a craving right now. And he kind of freezes up like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm just vocalizing it and saying it because when you say it, it, 
it just gives it less power. And typically, you know, 15, 20 minutes after I realize that I'm hungry or angry or tired or something like that, and it has a reasoning behind it, it, it will pass. Yeah, I love the very simple tool of giving it some time and sharing is important. Uh, just that layer of accountability, like you said, to your fiance, you don't have to do anything about it. I'm just telling someone and <laughs> yeah. sometimes that's harder than we think. You know, I, for someone who's one of my symptoms of my addictions and my depression is always isolating. I, I when I go quiet, be careful because <laughs> it's probably that I don't really want to share what's going on. So I'm glad you have that um, with them because support systems at home are really important, not just the community that you've built through connecting with other sober people. So speaking of that, how was it talking about this decision to your family, your friends, just your circle of influence that you interacted with? What did you immediately tell them? How did that go? I told my best friend um, who I lived with at the time, she realized that I had been gone around seven o'clock every few days for an hour and would come back and I, I was going to meetings. And I, I finally told her, I said, hey, look, I, I've stopped drinking. I, I've been going to meetings. And she kind of looked at me, and went, OK, cool. <laughs> Very great. Everything was the same. And honestly, like our relationship at that point um, as a friend, she we just became closer. There were some people that were surprised like why why would you do that but still supportive I, I never heard anything negative I'm, I'm really lucky to to have friends that that still still drink and I, I still love hanging out with them but they're so supportive and they'll you know make sure there's LaCroix or Topo or you know a non-alcoholic beer whatever it is and it that that just means so much when I told my family, my immediate family, specifically my mom and dad. Um, I think my mom really doesn't understand why she respects it. My dad was very supportive and um, had been in the program before. So he helped answer a lot of questions, you know, about going to meetings and things like that. So yeah, overall, really good. I, I remember dating a little mm -hmm. bit after that. And those were definitely mixed reactions because I was very open about my sobriety and those dates ended quickly. However, you know, I found somebody that that is incredibly supportive, um, super inquisitive about it, always asking me how I'm feeling and a really, really great partner to have. I'm assuming it acts it acted um, as a quick filter when you started dating. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I mean, seriously, it's probably better, right? Because I, I haven't dated in many, many years, but I just feel like it's harder now from what I hear from my friends. And it probably saved you a lot of time to just put it out there. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. Yeah, it, it really did. And, you know, you just put up with a lot less, too. You know, if you put up those, those, I hate to say expectations, but maybe standards, you put up those standards for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and if it didn't, if it just wasn't going to work, it wasn't about dragging it on or lubricating the situation with alcohol and fun times. It was just, this isn't going to work. Nothing against you, but you know, <laughs> good for you. I'm going to, I'm going to move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good for you. Cause that talk about awkward. That had to be a little bit awkward, but I feel like you knew that you were just acting in your best interest and also in the other person's best interest just by mm -hmm. being honest. So, and, and 
I'm happy to hear. I mean, you're engaged. Do you found someone that supports you? That's priceless. Yeah. Well, it happened the other way too. You know, I definitely got re- my fear of rejection as well. People were were turned off by the the not drinking. Of course. Um. So it went both ways. But you know, I'm I'm so thankful for the way things turned out. Obviously. <laughs> when you started pursuing this, and when the decision started settling in, did you have fears of of missing out? Did you experience any FOMO? I did, and I always, yeah, I, I think I've always felt that my entire life that sense of FOMO, that something is happening somewhere else that's so much more fun than where I am. Mm. Um, (laughs) And when I first stopped drinking, those first two weeks or so, I was pretty much a homebody. But then I would say week three or four, you know, I started going out, you know, to Sands Bar to still hanging out with my friends that were part of the nightlife culture, um, but just not drinking drinking a a soda water with lime and nobody knew the difference and still having a fun time. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm still out and about and doing the same exact things that those are doing that are drinking, but I'm sober. And I went, okay, I can still do that. (laughs) There's nothing stopping me from doing that. The only thing different was that at, you know, midnight when I would have been down to go to the next bar and down to get another drink, I finally went, oh, you know, I'm a little tired. I'm going to go home. And it was fine. <laughs> but yes, I, I did experience that FOMO. I still went out and I still, I guess, partied, but with with no alcohol. Um, and then when quarantine happened, that, that really all stopped. And now I really don't have any sense of FOMO at all. <laughs> did you, I am so happy. Yeah, <laughs> being, yeah that's know. good. It's so nice when you realize that you can still do all the things that mm-hmm. you used to do and with a ton of perks like waking up not hungover and getting such good sleep. Have you noticed any sleep changes or new patterns? Yes. When I first stopped drinking, I don't remember. I, I slept so well. I slept through the night without waking up at all. Um, I'm one that that I grind my teeth uh, when I sleep. I, I That lessened a ton. Um, when I stopped drinking because the anxiety wasn't as bad. Yeah, my sleep quality got a lot better. Um, now, you know, we have a dog, so um, she'll sleep with us sometimes. So I'm still waking up, but the sleep quality is way, way better for sure. What do you say to people when they offer you a drink and they don't know you're sober? Oh, I just say, no, thanks. I think when I first became sober. I was so, it was so new and so fresh. And it was something that I felt I had to vocalize almost to keep me accountable. I would say, Oh, no, thanks. I don't drink. Um, or no, thanks. I'm not drinking right now. Now I just say, no, thanks. And, you know, I say, Hey, do you have a Coke or, you know, do you have a Topo or whatever it is? And, and people are mostly people don't really bat an eye, you know, gotten a few different reactions, but for the most part, pretty good. What's your favorite non-alcoholic beverage? A coffee. Hmm. 100%. Uh, coffee with almond creamer. Iced or hot, whichever. Yes, depending on the season. I love my coffee too. Yeah. Yeah. I also really I also really like sparkling waters. LaCroix or the Bubblies. Um, really anything sparkling. I like those too. There's so many now. It's definitely a movement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Corey, have you been able to identify any triggers? Yes. 
honestly, it's sometimes work stress is a trigger, especially toward the end of the day. Um, when I'm, when things are busy and I'm a little bit hungry, I I find that. And so it's just a matter of stepping back and, you know, trying to, to see what I can do to, to calm that, that trigger, that craving, as well as sometimes when I'm, when it's summer and it's hot out and I've been running, I used to be, be part of a, a running beer club, which sounds crazy, but we, we ran and then we would drink after, um, sometimes when I'm running or it's really hot out, I'll, I'll find myself craving alcohol. Totally. I mean, it is a thing. There are a whole bunch of running and, uh, bar crawl blends here in San Diego as well. And I would always be like, Ooh, I like running too, but <laughs> I never had long windows during the weekend due to the kids. But I was always like, Ooh, when I have my time back again, after the kids are older, I can't wait to join the runner and craft beer club. So I know exactly right. what you're talking about. And seasonal mood, uh, seasonal cravings, excuse me, are real. You know, a lot of people feel like they crave different things according to the weather, the season. So 100%. And that's awesome that you've been able to identify because only when you identify can you potentially have a plan in place to, I don't know, have something else that's cold in the fridge waiting for you. And that'll, that'll take care of it. Those little swaps really do help. Oh, it really does. And yeah, that having a Lercoy or an NAB or something, it, it, it really takes, <laughs> I hate to say the word, but it takes the edge off and it really does. It goes, oh, wait, I can, I can do this instead. And that's okay. Totally. And then, and then it, it passes. Totally. It, it is a thing. So yeah, that's great. Corey, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Si, lista. Lista, perfecto. What are you excited about right now, Corey? What possibilities in your new sober life? I am honestly, I'm so excited right now to to talk to you and to kind of put my story out there, just hoping that it you know, help somebody else. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited to, to almost get two years. I, I know it should feel any difference, but I'm, I just, I can't wait to get that, that two year chip. <laughs> Milestones matter. And I love celebrating. So I'm glad you're excited and I'm really happy you reached out and you wanted to come on the show. I know a lot of listeners will love hearing this and you're going to help some people. That's the neat thing about this. You never know who you're going to help. So I'm glad you came on. You said you loved reading. Are you reading any books right now? I have been reading uh, the same book for a while. I just I, I keep picking it up and then putting it down. Um, it's the John Adams biography, mm-hmm. um, which I find fascinating. I really love history, especially American history. So I've been reading that. And then honestly, I I am really big into my faith and I'm trying to to dig more into to reading the Bible as well. That's so awesome. it's kind of been something that I've, I've picked back up. What's a light bulb moment that you've had during this journey? That I am okay just the way I am. And people like me even when I'm not drinking. Especially when you're not drinking. Especially I bet when you. I'm not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite ice cream flavor? That's such a good question. So it's called Moose Tracks. And you find it in the, the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, essentially, it's chocolate fudge, um, peanut butter cups, and chocolate chips all mixed in with vanilla ice cream but yeah it's called moose tracks so good that sounds delicious 
What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? It's worth it. And your life doesn't stop once you start drinking. It really doesn't. And as cliche as that sounds, it, it really starts. Um, it's so worth it. Yeah, many people need to hear that. Thank you. And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you're so hungover that the next day you're throwing up at 8 p.m. the next day. <laughs> it's probably time. Corey, I'm so glad you reached out. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us on the podcast. I hope to meet you in person sometime. Maybe you can take me to Sands Bar. I would love it. Yeah. And then we'll go eat. We'll go eat some tacos. Sounds good. Take care, Corey. Thank you so much. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you once again that you are so much more than this struggle. Not just your drinking struggle, but any of your struggles. You can be who you were before this, or you can rediscover yourself as you're learning to navigate this journey. You can leverage this to your advantage and build a foundation that will allow you to be whoever you want to be. I see you playing sober podcasts and feeling the recovery burnout at times. Another quit lit book in your Amazon cart, right? Keep your head up and don't get discouraged. Before you know it, it will be back to those mystery novels you love so much and your new favorite Spotify playlist. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, you're a bright star in the universe. Shine on. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. thinking.